This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 8th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Philadelphia is in a class by itself when it comes to seizing the property of its residents without arresting them or even charging them with crimes. Darpana Sheth is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. She's leading a class action to stop civil asset forfeiture in the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia is really the ground zero for forfeiture abuse. Um, While many other jurisdictions have civil forfeiture laws, Philadelphia has really turned civil forfeiture into this machine that is devouring people's property as well as taking away their constitutional rights. So the uh, specific case that you all have filed attempts to stop the city of Philadelphia from seizing people's homes without them being charged with a crime often and without certainly not without a trial without a trial right they they've um philadelphia has seized people's properties but it's not just limited to homes they've seized people's homes cars and cash and in fact from 2002 until 2012 the da's office has taken over a thousand homes 3200 vehicles and over 44 million in cash from its residents many of whom were never charged with any wrongdoing and it's taken this and essentially put it in its own pocket. Um, the DA's office directly benefits from all the forfeiture proceeds that it takes. I've heard uh, interviews with Beth Grossman, who heads the office that is essentially in charge of these proceedings. You can't call them courtroom proceedings because they're, they're not really in a courtroom. There's no judge. And it just seems odd to me how... Uh, she will defend uh, this practice when there, again, no convictions uh, are necessary. Right. And that that is something that's true of civil forfeiture law in general, which is why the Institute for Justice is fighting these laws. But it goes beyond just the fact that there's not a conviction. Um, People who have their property taken have to appear in, in what you say is a sham courtroom in 478 where there is no judge. And the person that's running those proceedings is, in fact, the prosecutor themselves, who has a direct financial benefit and financial incentive to take the property in the first place and then keep it. And it's these prosecutors who are running those proceedings. They're the ones who frequently advise property owners that they don't that the process is simple and they don't have, um, they don't need an attorney to help them. It's these prosecutors who demand that the property owners return multiple times to courtroom 478 before they even see a judge, um, sometimes up to a dozen times in a single case. And if the property owner fails to show up just once, then the prosecutors win through what's known as default judgment and the prosecutors get to keep the property. And ultimately, it's the prosecutors who stand to benefit from this proceeding because the forfeiture proceeds go directly back to the DA's office, often to pay the salaries, including salaries of the very prosecutors who are bringing these forfeiture actions. So is there a clear sense of, uh, I guess, urgency on the part of this office to bring as many of these claims as possible? Uh, We believe so. Um, They collect over $6 million in forfeiture revenue each year, um, and that's through just taking property. Uh, Many of from many uh, residents or property owners who are in fact innocent and have never been charged with a crime. So how does this typically occur? You have clients who who have been dealing with this, but what is the typical process that uh, a property owner 
goes through. So in the case of our lead clients, Chris Christo Suvarellis, um, he learned about the nightmare of civil forfeiture when all of a sudden he received a frantic call from his wife. Um, the police had showed up at his home and they were there to arrest his youngest son for a drug crime. Um, his youngest son had been observed selling $40 worth of drugs outside the home the day before. Police waited, though, didn't arrest his son at that time, waited until the next day to arrest the son at his home. And uh, once they arrested him, they kind of thought that their nightmare was over, that, you know, it was a first-time offender. He was going to go to a diversionary program called, like, Drug Treatment Court, where he has to go through drug rehabilitation um, and plead no contest to some of the drug crimes. A month later, after all that, while... Christos Suvarellis was driving his son to the drug rehabilitation program is when police showed up at his house. Um, his wife was there alone and demanded that she leave, take all her belongings, and everybody be kicked out of the house. And that is the first time the Suvarellis' learned about civil forfeiture. Um, they were armed with what's known as a seize and seal order that the prosecutors are obtaining in secret proceedings, what's known as ex parte proceedings, um, that are given without any warning to the property owner and without any opportunity to go before a judge and explain why they should be allowed to remain in their home. Um, after that, they were homeless for about a week, and they were told to go to this courtroom 478 and, you know, talk to the judge at that time. Uh, of course, they go to courtroom 78, and there is no judge to talk to. The only person they were able to talk to is the prosecutor who's bringing the forfeiture action against the home. And they were told that they don't need a lawyer. The process is simple. They were told in order to be let back into their home, they'd have to agree to a number of conditions, one of which was that they had to agree to ban their youngest son from the home. Um, and there was no specification as to how long, just for the pendency of the forfeiture proceeding. Um, they felt like they had no choice. They didn't have counsel. They were also, part of that agreement was also that they would waive their rights to future, in any future um, forfeiture proceeding. So, for example, uh, Christo Sivarellis would not be able to assert an innocent owner defense in any future uh, forfeiture proceeding or assert that any forfeiture would be an excessive fine or disproportionate. And that's future forfeiture proceedings where they don't even know what the facts could be. Um, unfortunately, they felt like they had no other choice if they wanted to get back into their home, so they signed this agreement. And to this day, uh, their son is not allowed in the home. It seems that there's a, at least a, a small First Amendment concern here, that is the, the right of freely associating with your own son in your own home. Um, yes, and, and certainly 14th Amendment uh, problems as well, the right for parents. Um, and certainly this is all based on an un underlying unconstitutional order, which is the order to seize and seal, which the Supreme Court has made clear that when it's real property, when it's people's homes, their businesses, or real property that's not going to, you know, get up and leave, there must be notice and there must be an opportunity to go before a judge. What is the defense offered by city officials for this law? The best they can articulate is that it's a law that's uh, designed and that they implement to curb uh, the combat, I guess, the, the problem with drugs. But I think, you know, the statistics speak for themselves. 
um, 40% of the money that the DA's office is bringing in goes to pay salaries, um, including salaries of the very prosecutors and, and the police who are involved in, um, in the forfeitures. Meanwhile, zero dollars is, is spent on community drug programs or community-based drug crime fighting. And so I think those numbers speak for themselves about the real purpose of this law. In terms of the scale of uh, this program, this operation that's going on in Philadelphia, how does it compare to other major cities? It is a class by itself, and that's why we call it a, a forfeiture machine in Philadelphia. Um, compared to other counties in, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, it is it far surpasses other counties. So there's all other counties operating under the same law. Um, in Philadelphia, for example, they've seized over 1,100, it's 1,172 homes during an 11-year period. By contrast, all other 66, 67 counties in Pennsylvania have seized only 56 homes. Um, and then when you compare it to other jurisdictions, so you say, okay, well, Philadelphia is a big metropolitan city. Um, Philadelphia brings in over $6 million a year in forfeiture revenue, and that's twice the amount that um, both Brooklyn, New York, and Los Angeles County bring in combined. And so even when you compare it to other large urban environments, it's, it's really in a class by itself. In the near term, what are you asking the court to do before this uh, goes to trial? Um, we will be moving for uh, what's known as a preliminary injunction, so asking the court to suspend the city's practice of seizing people's homes and sealing them without giving property owners any warning or opportunity to go before a judge. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this is clear precedent that the Supreme Court um, ruled on over 20 years ago and said that when it's real property, Property owners must be afforded an opportunity for notice and an opportunity to go before a judge because unlike a yacht or unlike a car or unlike money, the property is not going to just go away somewhere in between. And so therefore, property owners must be afforded that notice and an opportunity to be heard before a court under the Due Process Clause. Darpana Sheth is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. Follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Cato Podcast. And subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and at Cato.org.